Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 234, The Russian Elite After the Revolution, Part 1. Last time, I shared my interview with William Clark of Grey Histories about Catherine the Great. Two episodes back, though, we finished the five-part series on the tumultuous year of 1917. Today, we cover an aspect of the aftermath of the Rev Russian Revolution with the topic of what happened to the Russian elite. Today's episode will focus on those who left Russia after the revolution. In contrast, the following episode will focus on those sad people who stayed. In researching the fate of the wealthy people of high society in Russia before and after the Russian Revolution, I came upon two literary works. The first is After the Revolution, Russian Exiles in Paris from the Belle Epoque Through the Revolution and War by Helen Rappaport. This book covers the tens of thousands of immigrants who made their way to Paris, France, after the Revolution and Civil War. The second book, my author Douglas Smith, is entitled Former People, The Final Days of the Russian Aristocracy. This tells the story of those poor souls who remained in Russia and the new Soviet Union after the Revolution. My other sources are the tales I was told by my family and their friends, who I got to know while growing up in the Russian Orthodox community in New York City. It also includes my month in Cannes, France in 1972 at the camp next to the Russian Orthodox Church there. And there, I met a wide array of children of Russian emigres from all over Europe, as well as some of those who made it out of Russia with some of their wealth intact. Before we get into the aftermath of the revolution, it is essential to know a little bit about the Russian aristocracy and why the Bolsheviks, and for that matter, most average Russians at the time, detested them. As the grandson of one of those aristocratic families, it took quite a bit for me to come to the grips with their incredible wealth, which they lost all in World War II, and their views of the ordinary Russian. There was a bit of a, how would you put it, a disconnect between those with more money than they knew how to spend, as you shall see, and the abject poverty of most of their fellow citizens. The Russian nobility class had its start in the 14th century, after the Mongol invasion, and shortly before the yoke had been overthrown. The Russian word for nobility, dvoryanstvo, derives from Slavonic dvor, meaning the court of a prince or duke or kniaz, and later of the czar or emperor. By 1914, there were about 1.9 million members of the nobility class in Russia, representing a little more than 1% of the population. My mother was born in Belgrade, Yugoslavia in the early 1920s. Her family was exceedingly wealthy. She lived in a large mansion with marble staircases and a bevy of servants to take care of her every want and need. Unfortunately, her father, my grandfather, died when she was three years old when he passed a kidney stone while demonstrating how to defuse a hand grenade. Talk about bad timing. She, her two siblings, and her mother would then come under the care of her godfather. He was also a very wealthy man. 
The life of privilege, though, would abruptly halt with the German invasion of Yugoslavia on April 6th, 1941, which led to their total surrender on April 18th. My mother's family would lose everything, just like so many of the others would lose after the revolution. She was 18 and would lose her sister to Auschwitz. Her brother would be considered killed in action fighting the Soviets in Ukraine. He was not. I found his obituary online a few years ago. He would live until 2002, and my mother would never know that as she passed away in 2011. The story will not be the only tragic one we will encounter in the next two episodes. In fact, most are far worse than my family's. Heading away from my family into Paris before the revolution, I'd like to share some facts and tidbits about the type of wealth, debauchery, and lavish lifestyles the Russian aristocracy lived. Most of this comes from Helen Rappaport's book, After the Romanovs. The love of everything French was a very aristocratic Russian phenomenon. It began with Peter the Great's visit to Paris in 1717 and culminated in Tsar Alexander I's entrance into the City of Lights in 1814, following the defeat of Napoleon Bonaparte's Grande Armée. Many of the Russian nobility thought that the Russian language itself was a bit barbaric, but that French, oh, French was cultured and sophisticated. My mother would push French on me from second grade through my senior year in high school. Even though I lived in a Hispanic neighborhood, and despite my abysmal grades. Today, I speak German, some Russian, and almost no French. So much for 10 years of public school education. The Crimean War of 1853 to 56 would dampen relations between Russia and France, but that would recover rapidly in the 1860s. Then, in 1867, the Exposition Universelle would bring over 20,000 Russians to Paris. It would become the aristocracy's favorite vacation spot, so much so that Tsar Alexander II helped pay for and build a new Russian Orthodox church in Paris, known as the Alexander Nevsky Cathedral. With the arch-conservative Tsar Alexander III's ascension as 1881, the many Grand Dukes of Russia, themselves Romanovs, would need to find a place to let their hair down. Paris was their destination of choice. These ridiculously wealthy men would carouse in Montmartre, hanging out with actresses and prostitutes. One example is Grand Duke Alexis, the son of Alexander II and brother of Vladimir and Paul. He would be the admiral of the uh, fleet in the Russo-Japanese War, which showed his utter incompetence. There was also talk of his stealing money from the imperial fleet to pay for his lavish lifestyle. As Rappaport points out, quote, The ladies of Paris cost Russia at least a battleship a year. Alexis once gave the French actress Elizabeth Belletta a diamond and ruby cross that cost $22,600 at the time. This is the equivalent of more than $700,000 in today's money. The cross would be nicknamed, quote-unquote, the Pacific Fleet. Alexis would be forced to resign his post as admiral of the fleet because of his gross incompetence and financial shenanigans. He would be one of the proverbial lucky ones 
as he would not live long enough to see the revolution, as he died in Paris in 1908. Alexis's decades of comfort and good living eventually took their toll on his health, as he died of pneumonia, an overly obese and unhealthy man. In 1905, with the events surrounding Bloody Sunday and other tragedies occurring, including the assassination of Grand Duke Sergei, the fifth son of Tsar Alexander II, the nobility of Russia began to sense that the country they called home, Russia, was becoming more and more inhospitable. Some, like my family and many others, started to make plans to leave the country and find safer havens. They also began to move their vast fortunes out of Russia. Those who had this kind of foresight would do far better than their fellow aristocrats. The amount of frivolous spending by the Romanov family and others in the upper crust of society was astonishing. The media in Russia, especially the growing radical elements, would use this against them. Imagine the outrage of a simple factory worker who would feel how he would feel hearing about the excesses while you yourself struggle to make ends meet. This would expose one of Tsar Nicholas II's most significant faults, a disconnect with the people of Russia. He was no longer the little father. He was the epitome of everything that was wrong with their country. People like Trotsky and Lenin would stoke up the anger of the populace. This explains the absolute viciousness and brutality against the nobility we shall see unleashed in this series. The people of Russia were angry that their tax dollars would subsidize the immoral behaviors and lavish spending of a small group of the privileged. So, how could the upper crust be so blind to the ramifications of their actions? Over the years, when I talked to relatives and their friends within the Russian Orthodox Church, a common theme emerged. Quote, it was God's will that we have this kind of wealth and privilege. Unquote. They truly believed that they were better mannered, better educated, and better at supporting the church, both financially and spiritually. The fact that their manners and education were due to their financial status was irrelevant to their way of thinking. They truly believed they were superior. And I can't say I see much of a difference with some of the wealthy people of today. The repercussions should be evident to everyone. The era of opulence in Paris was known as the Belle Epoque. The outbreak of World War I shook the foundation of the nobility in Russia. But not enough for them to give up their lifestyles. With the horrendous losses of men and the strain on the Russian people nearing a breaking point, we evidence the outcome in our last series of the events of 1917. The title of Rappaport's fourth chapter is, quote, We have outlived our epoch and we're doomed. These words would be uttered by Grand Duchess Maria Pavlovna, daughter of Grand Duke Paul, in March of 1917. She didn't have a clue how right she was. In 1917, the provisional government began to take the palaces and many of its trappings of wealth and excess away from many of the aristocrats, especially in the newly renamed Petrograd and in Moscow. 
This would deprive many of the money they needed to make a getaway in style. As the government began to falter, the reality that the ultra-radical elements of the revolution would gain control would hasten the exodus out of Russia. Many of the nobility would have delusions that the White Army would eventually gain victory over the low-class scum like the Bolsheviks. But the reality that this was just a fantasy began to take hold. They needed to get out of Dodge and get out now. In April of 1917, Maurice Paleologue, the French ambassador to Russia, had dinner one final time with Grand Duke Paul and his wife Olga at their palace at Sarskoy Selo. He remembered walking with them through the house. Paleologue wrote in his memoirs, quote, We feasted our eyes on all of these splendors, the pictures, the tapestries, the protrusion of furniture and treasures of art. What was the good of all of that now? What would become of all these marvels and glories? With tears in her eyes, the poor princess said to me, Perhaps this house will be taken from us quite soon. And I've put so much of myself into it. While the target of the provisional government was the ruling Romanovs, Nicholas and his family, as well as the Grand Dukes and Duchesses, Lenin was quoted as saying in 1901, quote, It was necessary to cut off the heads of at least a hundred Romanovs. When the Bolsheviks came to power in late 1917 and early 1918, anyone deemed bourgeois was considered an enemy of the state. If you think this meant only those with money and power, think again. This meant writers, artists, scientists, and the educated. The Bolsheviks used the terms attack, expropriate, and the scariest word of all, liquidate. The fear of all of these people was to manifest itself late in October and early November, when it was apparent that the radical left had seized power. The scramble to find a way out of Russia was underway. There were two problems. First, the Bolsheviks and their current allies controlled much of the railway system, making travel difficult at best. While people could move and travel, they were somewhat restricted by what they could take with them. Imagine that most of your wealth is tied up in jewels, art, buildings, and other non-liquid assets. You could only take so much with you, maybe one or two suitcases. The rest you needed to leave behind. When the Bolsheviks took control of the banks, they froze any money the wealthy possessed. The shortest distance from St. Petersburg to a foreign country would be to head to Finland. Well, the Bolsheviks knew this and quickly shut that route down. The next best option for many of the elite was to head south towards Crimea. That is where some of the more substantial contingents of the White Army were encamped. The city of Kiev was a gathering point for many Russians, nobility included, who wanted out of Russia. From there, they all hoped to make it to Odessa, to board a ship to France, London, Constantinople, or any country or city that would take them. By this time, the royal family had been executed, along with many grand dukes, their wives, and children. But by the summer of 1918, there had been some signs of leniency for the minor 
nobility related, though sometimes distantly, to the Romanos. This was to come to an abrupt and brutal halt on September 12, 1918. This is when the head of the Cheka, Moisey Uritsky, was assassinated in Moscow. A reign of terror swept over the city. Thousands were executed, and many others were arrested and tortured. The final four Romanovs were executed at the Trubetskoy Bastion on January 30, 1919, in a humiliating fashion. The temperature was 20 below zero. They were forced to remove their coats and shirts before being shot in front of a pit. As one of the executioners said to the four men, Grand Duke Dmitri, Paul, Nikolai, and Georgie, we're going to shoot you, and we're not going to bury you under slabs of marble, but under slabs of wood. Fifteen of the members of the royal family and their close friends made it out of Russia in April 1919. Over the next two years, the last of the refugees were able to make it out of Russia, only to face abject poverty, disgrace, and facing a future where they would actually have to work to make a living. It would break many, strengthen some, and cause hardships for all. Paris was one of the main cities where these poor souls would head to, believing that somehow, someway, they could revive a world that was no more. When Russian emigres arrived in Constantinople from Odessa, many had no food and little money. Still, the wealthier people had jewelry and other tradable commodities to get food and transportation to other countries. Problem was, there were tens of thousands of people like this. Hence, the dealers in Constantinople took advantage of the situation. They bought jewels for pennies on the dollar. But these were desperate people, especially those with children. So they grudgingly sold whatever they could to continue living. Some had nothing with which to barter with. They begged for work, but they were of a class with no skills and no history of working. But they had to find a way to survive. A group of American relief workers made this observation about some of these people. Quote, Pathetic appeal of the refined-looking men and women who stood hopelessly on the street corners of Constantinople, with newspapers offered mutely for sale. The old city would see over 250,000 Russian refugees come through its ports. By 1922, there were about 35,000 living there. Eight years later, it would be down to 3,000. In December 1921, a young writer would pen the following for the Toronto Star newspaper as a correspondent about the influx of Russians into Paris, which is where many of the privileged class yearned to reach. Quote, they are drifting along in Paris in a childish sort of hopelessness that things will somehow be all right, which is quite charming when you first encounter it and rather maddening after a few months. No one knows how they live except by selling off jewels and gold ornaments and family heirlooms that they bought with them to France. The author of that quote was Ernest Hemingway. Those with Romanov ties were somehow making do, as many had kept their Parisian homes with some valuables still in them to sell off. However, 
they would be humiliated when the Bolsheviks began selling off their former precious items at auction houses in Paris and London. There were legal battles that ensued, but none of them were successful. What kept these families of the rich and famous alive, though? It turned out that the women had a skill set that translated into a viable business, needlework. They would sew dresses for their daughters while living the high life in Russia. Even Empress Alexandra was noted by her confidant, Maria Pavlovna, that they, quote, used to amuse ourselves by making dresses for little grand duchesses. Many of these women would work together, creating their own little businesses, sewing for the elite members of Paris, who took pity on them, but knew they were very talented. My mother and grandmother would become just like them when they made it to the United States in the 1950s. They would work at sewing shops making costumes for the New York City Theater. Shortly, I'm going to uh, put up some of the pictures of some of my late mother's incredible needlepoint. And if you're going to be able to see that at my website, RussianRulersHistory.com, and I hope to have it out in the next few days. Well, back to Paris and the workshops of the past noble women. One thing they would do while working for hours is that they would reminisce about their past glories. As Maria Pavlovna wrote, quote, The past was like a dusty diamond, which we held to the light in the hope of seeing the sun's rays play through it. We spoke of the past. We looked back at it. And speaking of the past, we sought for no lessons but tirelessly and aimlessly went over old ground, seeking whom to blame for what had befallen us. Our future as a whole we could not imagine, while our return to Russia, of which we were then so certain, we picture only under very definite auspices. We live side by side with life, but we're afraid of meeting it. You know, I can't tell you how often I heard an old Russian talk about the good old days, the glory days, or the fantastic life they led. They never talked about the people or Russia who had little. And instead, they would speak of all the charitable work they supposedly did. A few would admit to me quietly, away from the others, that it was the opulence that they lived in that probably caused the revolution that took all of that away from them. Coco Chanel, yes, the originator of Chanel Number no. 5 perfume, would help some of the Russian noble women to promote their businesses. Some would flourish, some would flounder, but at least they had something to do to take their minds off their poverty. But what of the men? What were they able to do to help support the families? Taxi cab driving. Most of the upper crust of Russian men had no idea what it meant to have a job, especially manual labor. At the time, in Paris and most of France, they needed manual labor workers to go help rebuild the country after World War I. This was a no-go for the formerly wealthy Russians. What they could do was drive, and drive with an aristocratic flair. While few had the financial ability to buy their own cabs, they would work for companies that needed drivers. Men were pretty much the only people who could drive cabs, and there was a shortage due to the massive loss of life of young men in the war. 
It was also a job that the Russian noblemen could do without losing too much face. The common saying around Paris in the mid-1920s was, quote, The men drive taxis and the women sew for a living. By 1930, somewhere around 50,000 Russian emigres lived in and around Paris. While in the Roaring Twenties, things were okay. By the 1930s, a global depression hit the world. Interestingly enough, the newly formed Soviet Union did not go through a depression like most of the world. And this was true. It was a point that they used pretty often in their propaganda machine. For the Russian refugees, the depression would hit them doubly hard. Since few could gain French citizenship easily, they fell prey to the French employment regulations that favored native-born citizens. They were also resented by the native population as competitors to the dwindling employment market. Life in France was hard for the typical Russian. Many would decide to leave and head for America. In the United States, many organizations were built to help those of Russian heritage. The Tolstoy Foundation was one, but the most important was the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia, also known as Rokor. This was the church that my family belonged to, as our headquarters were across Central Park where I grew up in New York City. In wrapping up this episode, there were an estimated one million emigres from Russia who sided with the whites. They spanned all classes and included military soldiers and officers, Cossacks, intellectuals of various professions, dispossessed business people and landowners, as well as officials of the Russian imperial government and of various anti-Bolshevik governments of the Russian Civil War period. They were the lucky ones, as I mentioned earlier. Join me next time when we wrap up the series with the fates of those who either decided to remain on their own volition or those who simply could not get out. It is a harrowing tale. So until next time, das vidanya is pasiba bolshoya.